This program is brought to you by Stanford University. Hi there, welcome. My name is Matthew Tews. I'm the Associate Director of the Humanities Center. I'm delighted to welcome you here today to the third in our series of Arts Critics in Residence uh, this year. Uh, we're delighted to welcome Anthony Tomasini of the New York Times, um, who uh, is going to be speaking us, to us today um, uh, about his, uh, the craft of writing criticism. Um, this is a series that brings leading, leading arts critics to campus to discuss their craft with the Stanford community and to lead a workshop with students on the art of writing criticism. Uh, it's sponsored by a grant from the Stanford Institute for Creativity and the Arts, and it's co-sponsored by the Humanities Center, the School of Humanities and Sciences, the Drama Department, and the Film Studies Program. Uh, tomorrow, just to give you a preview, there's going to be a discussion session with Anthony Tomasini at 4 p.m. here at the Humanity Center. And there are readings uh, that may be of interest for the discussion uh, available in the lobby. So please do pick those up. So to introduce uh, Mr. Tomasini today, we uh, have Stephen Hinton, who's the Senior Associate Dean for the Humanities and a professor in the Department of Music. So without further ado, I'm going to turn it over to Stephen to introduce Mr. Tomasini. Thanks. Um, thank you. Although I have never met Anthony Tomasini in person uh, until, that is, a few minutes ago, I feel as though I know him quite well, uh, thanks to the regular reviews he writes as the chief classical music critic of the New York Times, through which I am able to sample with a kind of vicarious pleasure the otherwise all-too-distant musical life of New York City. There's even a kind of silver lining to being here in California rather than there uh, sometimes. Unlike actually experiencing some of the less successful events themselves, reading his critical reviews of them is invariably a distinct pleasure. <laughs> An author and a pianist, Mr. Tomasini was born in Brooklyn and grew up in Long Island. He graduated with a Bachelor of Arts degree from Yale University in 1970 and later earned a Master of Music degree from the Yale School of Music and a Doctoral of Musical Arts degree from Boston University. His teachers have included the pianists Donald Currier and Leonard Shaw. He has taught music at Emerson College in Boston and given non-fiction writing workshops at Wesleyan University and Brandeis University. His interest in the work of the composer and critic Virgil Thompson, um, a model which in many ways he, I think, would insist he does not emulate yeah. in certain respects, yeah, cul <laughs> culminated with his book, Virgil Thompson, Composer on the Isle, published in 1997 by Norton. His latest book, released in November of 2004 and published by Times Books, is uh, part of the New York Times Essential Library series, is Opera, a Critic's Guide to the 100 important, most, uh, the 100 most important Works and the Best Recordings. It begins with a primer for newcomers to opera and includes 100 original essays on the chosen works. As a pianist, he has recorded two Northeastern Records compact discs of Thompson's music titled Portraits and Self-Portraits and mostly about love, songs, and vocal works. Both were funded through grants he was awarded by the National Endowment for the Arts. Prior 
prior to joining the Times, he covered music and theater for the Boston Globe. Not so long ago, he stated that although he has been primarily involved in journalism for many years, he thinks he has, to some extent at least, accomplished his original goal of becoming a teacher. I champion ideas, he said on that occasion, and bring things to people's attention that otherwise might have been overlooked. It's even better, though, because unlike in a class where some people don't want to be there, everybody who reads my column actually wants to read it. If the format of today's talk is more like a class than a column, I'm happy to say that all of us in attendance very much want to be here to learn about you and your work. With that, please join me in extending a warm welcome to Anthony Tomasini, who will be talking about some, uh, an art he practices uh, with consummate professionalism and style, the art of judging music, an update. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. I'm very happy to be here. I, I do sort of feel like as a critic, I'm, I'm a teacher, a kind of teacher anyway. And uh, at least that's the way I do it. So uh, I'm very happy to be here. But I don't do lectures very often. So Q&A, I'm really good at. But I, I actually wrote it all out. And I'm very academic. It's all very thorough. So here we go. Um, the Art of Judging Music is the title of a collection of reviews and essays by the composer Virgil Thompson, published during his 14-year tenure as the chief music critic of the New York Herald Tribune, 1940 to 1954. It was one of four such books published during those years. An aspiring critic today who wants to learn how writing about music can become an art form in itself could do no better than to read Thompson. Virgil Thompson became a mentor to me uh, when I began my career in criticism in early 1986. At the time, I was a pianist and a college music teacher living in Boston, and I lost my job. Don't get me started on that. <laughs> I had a hunch that I would be a good critic, so I volunteered myself to Richard Dyer at the Boston Globe, who tried me out, liked my initial efforts, then started giving me regular freelance assignments. I learned a great deal from Richard on the job. Virgil, whom I'd gotten to know, was nearly 90 at the time. He was delighted at this turn in my career and eager to help me. So for more than two years, I Xeroxed every review of mine that was published in the Globe and sent them off to Virgil. Then he would red pencil his comments in the pages. Periodically, I reported to his apartment at the Chelsea Hotel in New York to hear his postmortems. To others, Virgil praised my progress and bragged about me. To me, he was unremittingly critical. Every choice of word, every description was questioned, a tough but invaluable apprenticeship. So before turning to my own work, I'd like to talk some about his. Uh, Thompson was nearly 44 when he was recruited by Jeffrey Parsons, an editorial writer at the Herald Tribune, who served as a cultural overseer to the paper. Parsons had been extremely impressed by Thompson's 1939 book, The State of Music, an audacious, irreverent, and penetrating analysis of the entire field with an emphasis on its economics. One chapter was titled, How Composers Eat, or Who Does What to Whom and Who Gets Paid. Uh, elsewhere, in discussing the economic determinism of musical style, Thompson dryly explains how a composer's style is determined by the way he earns his living. 
be it from non-musical sources, from his own money, his wife's, from patronage, from teaching, from performing, and so on. Parsons was surprisingly unworried that Thompson's uh, active professional involvement in music would undermine his work, as I explained in my biography. Hiring, this from my book, hiring as the chief critic a composer with such well-documented and brilliantly stated prejudices was audacious. But Parsons wanted an insightful and captivating voice. So Thompson had provocative opinions? Then let him state them forthrightly in his columns and support them with description and analysis. Always attack head-on, Parsons later advised. Never make side swipes and never use innuendo. As long as you observe the amenities of controversy, the very first of which is straightforward language, the paper will stand behind you. As far as Parsons was concerned, Thompson's professional activity, far from compromising his authority, enhanced it. Well, that was then. It's astonishing to consider the degree to which Thompson disregarded what today would be seen as egregious conflicts of interest. While, while the chief critic at the Herald Tribune, he composed works that were performed by major orchestras and conducted by Thomas Beecham, Eugene Ormandy, Leopold Stokowski, and the like. Sometimes Thompson conducted his own works with major orchestras at concerts in New York. Inevitably, he sent one of his stringers to cover, to cover him. Inevitably, the review was positive. <laughs> While working at the Tribune, as the Tribune's critic, Thompson won the Pulitzer Prize for music for the orchestral suite from his film score for Louisiana Story. And he brought an unabashed agenda to his work. Still, much of that agenda was important and defensible. He was a tireless advocate for living composers, especially Americans, though he was not above promoting colleagues and settling scores with enemies. He exposed the practice of power-grabbing managers, particularly the shameless Arthur Judson, who in the late 30s was simultaneously the manager of the Philadelphia Orchestra and the New York Philharmonic, as well as the president of Columbia Concerts, the largest artist representative agency in America. Nearly every conductor from the 1920s through the 1950s, except for Toscanini, was handled by Judson. As a manager of orchestras, Judson was responsible for booking conductors and soloists. Naturally, he drew these artists from his own roster. Thompson, in his own words, approached the chief critic's job as a kind of knight errant, rescuing a damsel in distress. Those he battled did not see things that way, of course. And how was he able to get away with his polemical agenda for 14 years? Because no one had ever written about music with such clarity, brilliance, bluntness, and wit. During his first months on the job, he learned a great deal about the art of gentlemanly discourse from Parsons. Still, from day one, uh, with his first review, a report on the season opening concert of the New York Philharmonic in 1940, Thompson made clear that a sacred cow skewering an essential new voice had arrived. The program offered Beethoven's Egmont Overture and Elgar's Enigma Variations and Sibelius's Second Symphony, conducted by John Barbaroli. His review began. The Philharmonic Symphony Society of New York opened its 99th season last evening at Carnegie Hall. There was little that could be called festive about the occasion. The menu was routine, the playing ditto. <laughs> Beethoven's overture to Egmont is a classic hors d'oeuvre. Nobody's digestion was ever spoiled by it, and no latecomer has ever lost much by missing it. <laughs> 
Now, it's fun to contrast Thompson's comments about the Beethoven with those by his counterpart at the New York Times, Olin Downs, who in many ways was an astute critic, but who, in the words of Joseph Horowitz, uh, cherished the majority, whose viewpoint boosted the resonance and security of his own. Downs' ideal critic, Horowitz suggests, was one who identified with the audience and strove for a huge constituency of shared feeling. Now, in 1940, the war in Europe was raging. Describing the Egmont Overture, Downs wrote, Beethoven never produced more compact, dramatic, and powerful pages. And when the audience listened to that proud and passionate music and that exultant cry of liberty in its final pages, they must have thought of the tyranny and terror that stalked today in Beethoven's own land and taken heart from the sure prophecy of its pages. Uh, um, Almost certainly, after reading Downs' pontifical comments about Beethoven, Thompson took a poke at him by dropping a quip into his review of the next day, a concert by the Boston Symphony in Boston. The program was Vaughan Williams' London Symphony, Beethoven's Fifth. Thompson wrote, making a program out of only two works by two composers, one live Englishman and one dead German, is an obvious reference to current events and sympathies. <laughs> I could give an entire lecture on the art of judging music as practiced by Thompson, but before turning to the ways the field has changed since his time and the issues that confront me as I cover music for the times, let me give you a few more ex excerpts from the master. The combination of straightforward language and sharp analysis, and yes, strong opinion, never fails to amaze me. Here he is on Arthur Rubinstein, a report on Carnegie Hall, uh, on a uh, report on a Carnegie Hall concert late in 1940. He is a master of his instrument and of the music he plays, and he finds no reason for attracting undue attention to anything else. He is authoritative, direct, and courteous, like the captain of a transatlantic liner. <laughs> um, here he is in 1941 describing the competent and serious music of Paul Hindemith, which he didn't like very much. It has no warmth, no psychological understanding, no gentleness, no gemuthlichkeit, and no sex appeal. It hasn't even the smooth surface tension of systematic atonality. It is neither humane nor stylish, though it does have a kind of style, a style rather like that of some ponderously monumental and not wholly incommodious railway station. <laughs> <laughs> And then in 1953, here is Thompson describing Dmitry Metropolis conducting the New York Philharmonic and Schumann's Second Symphony. Thompson respected Metropolis, but sometimes objected to the conductor's overly agitated podium manner. In this case, Thompson wrote, uh, Metropolis's agitation revealed a personal excitement bordering on hysteria. So he continues, actually, when the conductor, in moments of calm, conducted straightforwardly and with a minimum of emotion, his orchestra followed with a maximum of beauty and with the authority of style that is our Philharmonic's way. But for the most part, he did everything to the orchestra but conducted. He whipped it up as if it were a cake, kneaded it like bread, shuffled an imaginary deck of cards, wound up a clock, shook a recalcitrant umbrella, rubbed something on a washboard and wrung it out. Really, there were very few moments when a film taken of the conductor alone without sound would have given any clue to the fact that he was directing a musical composition. <laughs> <laughs> uh, 
Now, finally, here he is, agenda front and center in a 1954 Sunday column, attacking, justifiably, I think, the comments of Rudolf Bing, who ran the Metropolitan Opera, responding to criticism, much of it from Thompson, that the Mets' just-announced new season looked terribly conventional. Bing had argued in an interview during a radio broadcast on behalf of the standard repertory. Is it a criminal offense, Bing asked, to present great operas that the public has long loved? Thompson wrote, it is not a criminal offense to play so conservative a repertory as Mr. Bing has laid out for this season, and nobody ever said it was. It is merely a neglect of duty. I have long found his program regrettable, and I found his radio speech of two weeks back acceptable only for the frankness of his admissions, shocking as they were. Then later he adds, he does not think the Met audience wants to hear new things anyway, and says he did not get one letter all last year asking for them. All the same, he plans to take a flyer next season with the new Stravinsky opera. We shall see what the public reaction will be, Mr. Bing added. Does this mean that he is giving contemporary music just one chance to compete with Carmen? Really, one has heard double talk from the Metropolitan spokesman before, but nothing quite so cynical as this. Now, in this account, he was absolutely right. Uh, what Thompson continually emphasized to me was that music criticism is a writer's job. At the Tribune, Thompson sought out young composers as his junior critics, including Arthur Berger, Lou Harrison, Paul Bowles. Composers, in his judgment, uh, had the best hands-on knowledge of how a composition really works. In a sense, as he put it in The Art of Judging Music, every composer was already a music critic. He is obliged to make musical judgments and to act on them. This necessity obtains primarily, of course, with regard to the work of other musicians, living and dead, insofar as his work is all a comment on theirs or an interpretation of it, which nine-tenths, at least, of anybody's musical work is. But all the musical knowledge imaginable will not help you if you cannot express your observations in words. And this is the main challenge of the job. Music resists being written about, something I struggle with every day. Maybe what we love about music is that it's the one powerful thing in our lives that, we can, that cannot be pinned down in words. There is, of course, a comprehensive vocabulary of technical terms that describe sound and musical phenomenon quite precisely. But that jargon is lost on most readers, even the majority of avid concertgoers. I cannot use a term like chromatic harmony without assuming most of my readers have no idea what this means. I have to say, I envy sports writers tremendously. Uh, they can assume so much knowledge on the part of readers. If you are covering a Yankees game, you wouldn't think of explaining what the designated hitter rule is. Readers of the sports pages would be affronted at your condescension. But an equivalent concept, concept in classical music would be something quite complicated, like passacaglia or retrograde inversion. Now, music critics must use these terms, but most of us try to use them sparingly. Uh, Virgil used to try, he urged me to try to find everyday language that would convey the sound and shape of the music I reported on. For example, instead of chromatic harmony, how about wandering harmony, or wayward harmony, or unmoored harmony. Um, no one, in my opinion, will top Virgil in his ability to convey how a piece of music actually sounds, to convey the nature of a performance with such colloquial and charming writing. But I try. Um, 
I looked through some recent articles for examples and came up with one. The premiere last month by the New York Philharmonic of a piano concerto by Tan Dun, the Chinese-born composer, best known for his Oscar-winning film score for Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. The conductor was Long Long, I'm sorry, the conductor was Leonard Slatkin. The soloist was Long Long, not one of my favorite pianists, though he played this exuberant 30-minute work brilliantly. Anyway, prior to the performance, as I reported in my review, the composer Stephen Stuckey spoke to the audience and predicted that they would find the piece both a crowd pleaser and a head scratcher. I wrote that I wasn't so sure about the head scratcher part, since the concerto gives away most of its secrets on first hearing, but it certainly was a crowd pleaser. Uh, Mr. Tan, uh, said that the piece was inspired by his love uh, of the martial arts, a practice of seeming contradictions, I, as I explained in my review. A stance of physical stillness can convey tension and quickness, I wrote, and a burst of action can seem cool and deliberate. Then I continue. Mr. Tan tries to capture this duality in music that veers from pages of stillness to explosions of energy. Each of the three movements is broken up with episodic sections. The piece begins with a slow, softly ominous rumbling trill in the piano, over which the orchestra floats pungent, deceptively calm chords that blithely sink from har slink sorry, from harmony to harmony. Soon the percussion section, alive with pummeling drum riffs, intrudes, prodding the pianist into bouts of fidgety chords and spiraling runs. The Bartok concertos, with their astringent harmonies and percussive piano writing, seem a model for Mr. Tan here. Yet during extended passages of dreamy lyricism, when the piano plays delicate melodic lines over rippling arpeggio accompaniments that sound like Asian salon music, Mr. Tan seems to be channeling Rachmaninoff. The orchestral writing is full of striking touches, as when a propulsive episode in the piano is backed up by rhythmically staggered fortissimo chords, all slashing strings and clanking brake drums. And Mr. Tan proved good at his word in treating Mr. Long as a martial artist of the keyboard. In, most, in the most hellbent outbursts, Mr. Long played clusters of chords with fists, karate chops, and the full weight of his forearms. Yet there are just as many delicate moments where Mr. Mr. Long created spans of fleecy passage work and haunting melodic lines of fast repeated notes, an evocation of the Chinese zither. Well, that's not bad, I think, but it's hard. Let me tell you, this is very, very hard. Um, it never gets easy, it's always hard. Um, now, if Virgil emphasized that music criticism is a writer's job, today I would emphasize that music criticism is also a reporter's job. There are urgent issues that a critic must deal with today, some of them holdovers from Virgil's time, some of them new. For a couple of decades, our major musical institutions have been facing, mul facing multiple challenges. Classical music is drowned out by popular culture. There is a woeful lack of music education in the public schools, though, th though that is finally starting to change. Orchestra and opera companies, as never before, are facing questions of mission and relevance, <coughs> legitimate questions. Think of this. Back when Johnny Carson hosted The Tonight Show, one of his favorite guests was Beverly Sills. But on quite a few occasions, Carson asked Sills to be the show's guest host. Can you imagine such a thing today? If Renee, Flem Renee Fleming appears on The Tonight Show, which is rare, Jay Leno has her sing a little something in the final few minutes. Then after greeting her, that's it. Sign off, tune in tomorrow. 
It is essential that critics weigh in on issues of education, mission, and relevance. To do so, a critic must deal with music and artists in the larger news context. Every review is a mix of news report and opinion piece. The mix is not 50-50, it depends upon the event. When the Norwegian pianist Leif Ove Ansnes was becoming known in America about 10 years ago, he was already one of my favorite artists of the new generation. So when I described his concerts, I made my estimation of him clear and tried to give him a boost. But other times, the news value of an event is paramount. For example, when the Metropolitan Opera, which had been a great but staid institution, began a new venture under its current general manager, Peter Gelb, to transmit live performances of Saturday matinees to high-definition screens in movie houses around the world. When Gelb announced this project, I was dubious. Who would go to a movie theater to see a live broadcast of an opera? I was wrong. Gelb was right. The broadcasts are visually arresting and hugely popular. Last season, when the Met transmitted Tchaikovsky's Eugene Onegin with Rene Fleming and Dmitry Vorstovsky in the lead roles, that broadcast was the eighth top-grossing movie in Canada that weekend, if you can imagine. Sometimes, to be respectful, I retreat a little into the reporter's mode. For example, though I have great respect for the pianist Alfred Brendel, he is not an artist who interests me very much. But when I have reviewed him, including his farewell performance in New York this past season, I tend to just report on the program. I give him full due and describe the performance sensitively, perhaps indicating just a bit what is lacking in his work to me. But in this case, there's no reason to foist my opinion on the readers. Remember, now, I work for a newspaper. I cover the news in my field. So what is news? A fine new artist is news. A bold new venture by an established musical institution is news. An automatic pilot performance by a touring virtuoso who's coast coasting on celebrity is news, unfortunate news. But what is always news, by definition, is new music. In this regard, like Thompson, I have passionate convictions. Call it an agenda. The classical music field must do more to foster the creation and performance of new works and to keep contemporary music of recent decades before the public. In terms of its repertory, classical music is the most conservative of the performing arts. Compare classical music to, for example, theater. If a repertory theater company presents a season of, say, 12 plays, four of them are one-third new and recent, fairly recent plays, four of them plays from the early to mid-20th century, and four of them older works, most theatergoers would consider that a very balanced season, offering popular appeal. Um, theater buffs tend to be very curious about new and recent work. But imagine if during the course of a New York Philharmonic season, one-third of the works performed were new or recent, one-third were from the early to mid-20th century, and one-third were older fare from Bach to Brahms. Most patrons would consider such a season radical, uh, many music historians have written about the shift in programming during the last century. In Verdi's day, Italian opera houses presented mostly new and recent operas, recent meaning works of the previous 20 years or so, with once in a while a production of something like Don Giovanni presented in the nature of a special revival. Today, we would consider Enrico Caruso to be practically a new music tenor. After all, especially in his early years, he sang mostly new and recent operas, including many premieres. And even when he sang a role like Radames in Aida, 
That work was newer than Billy Budd or the Rake's Progress is today. Of course, performers today are expected to keep much more of music from earlier decades before the public than their 19th century forebears. The revival of interest in Handel opera that has taken place in the last 30 years, for example, is an important and valuable development. Still, the balance has gotten off. Contemporary music must become a more basic component of our, of our concert life. When I speak with groups of music students, they always ask, how can they get the attention of Times critics? I always answer, play something newsworthy. Um, consider the issue from my perspective, my vantage point. If a very gifted, highly touted young pianist plays a recital in New York, and the program is your basic mix of, say, Bach, Beethoven, Chopin, and Ravel, that artist is putting me in a tight spot. In a way, there is nothing for me to say other than that, once again, a, talent piano, a talented pianist has found her way to Ravel's Gaspard de la Nuit and plays it beautifully. I am almost forced to describe her performance in the context of the great legacy of performances of that work. But if the artist plays a new work, something by a composer she knows and believes in, or if she is from Finland, say, and plays a work by a mid-20th century Finnish composer that I had not known, then I have something genuinely newsy to report to my readers. It takes the pressure off her performances, uh, off her performances of the staples. I can report that a wonderfully gifted and curious young pianist came to town with some intriguing new pieces. And, by the way, she played a very fine account of Gaspar. With young artists who are conventional in their programming, I can adopt, adapt a tone of mild disappointment and encouragement. He plays beautifully, but I wish he had played something more unusual. But with the major institutions, critics can and should expect them to champion living composers and neglected contemporary works, and to use their institutional clout to entice audiences and encourage patrons to be more adventurous. Californians have inspiring role models in this regard in this state. Michael Tilson Thomas at the San Francisco Symphony and Essek Pekka Salonen at the Los Angeles Philharmonic. I tremendously admire how each of them has managed to engage, energize their, or, or their orchestras and galvanize audiences. Um, Salonen, as he has told me and has, as he has demonstrated, understands that the art museums have been role models in finding innovative ways to entice new audiences into exhibits. He has tried to adapt their approaches. Too often, classical music is promoted as an uplifting, as uplifting, profound, and timeless. Come hear a program of Sibelius' second and Beethoven's sixth symphonies, two pastoral works, and have a transcendent experience. But how many transcendent experiences can a concertgoer expect to have in a single season? Solonen and his PR team promote concerts as if they were modern art exhibits. You really should drop by our cool, sleek Disney Hall this week and check out this wild piece by Messiaen or Ligeti or John Adams that we're playing. And there's Stravinsky's bustling Petrushka on the program as well. In comparison with Los Angeles, the New York Philharmonic, though a very great ensemble, has been exasperatingly stuffy. Uh, and let me tell you one out-of-house story. This is really out-of-house, but I'm going to tell it, such as it is. Um, about my impact, such as it is as a Times critic. Um, uh, with apologies to Joel Elveld. Um, in 2001, after the Philharmonic began searching for two years, rather haplessly, for a successor to Kurt Mazur as music director, all of a sudden, out of nowhere, the name of Lauren Mazel started leaking from the offices. 
Mazel had conducted the orchestra for two weeks in late 2000 for the first time in years, and the musicians were swept away by his commanding technique and comprehensive musicianship. But I could not believe that after 11 years of Kurt Mazur, a musician of great rectitude and strict Teutonic rehearsal habits, that the Philharmonic would go for another elder intimidating maestro. With the West Coast orchestras hopping, surely it was time for the Philharmonic to turn things over to a young dynamo, preferably an American, a real communicator, a networker who had formed associations with living composers. So I wrote a very strong critic's essay, acknowledging Mazel's strength, but laying out the reasons why he was all wrong for the job. If the orchestra had not yet found the next young Bernstein, why not pick an interim music director, like Holland Davis, for two or three seasons and keep the search going? Anyway, my piece ran on Monday, January 29th, 2001. That morning, the Philharmonic's board met and formalized the appointment of Lauren Mazel as the next music director of the Philharmonic. <laughs> Later that, that day at the office, Joseph Lelleveld, who was then the executive editor of the Times, a great man and a great journalist, asked me to stop by his office. Now, this does not happen every day, you know. Um, as I waited, he walked up and said out loud, Ah, is that the powerful chief classic music critic of the Times? <laughs> Uh, so you can see how much clout I have. <laughs> anyway, this past July, the Philharmonic announced that Alan Gilbert, a native New Yorker, now 41, would succeed Mazel in 2009. I had campaigned for a young adventurous conductor to finally be given a chance. And he's a great choice. Did I, have, did I influence the choice? I can't be sure, but I sure hope so. I have a feeling that the incredible excitement that greeted the stunning announcement last year that young Gustavo Dudamel will take over the Los Angeles Philharmonic may have cajoled the New York Philharmonic into being bolder. Anyway, I feel that I have a lot of allies among critics, all calling for institutions to energize themselves and be more adventurous. And I think there's much good news to report. If institutions try to reach out, young people are willing to respond, in my experience. Last season, the Met gave the premiere of Tan Dunn's opera, The First Emperor, starring Placido Domingo. I thought the piece overall was ill-conceived and dramatically turgid. Still, every performance so sold out, proving that sizable segments of the opera-going public are hungry for something new. Recently, you could not get a ticket for the Met's new production of Philip Glass's Satyagraha. And one of the highlights of my opera-going life came a few years ago when the San Francisco Opera presented the American stage premiere of Messiaen Saint-François d'Assis. The company really generated a buzz in the city about this astounding five-hour work, and reportedly, most performances sold out. Inevitably, in discussing how the field and the critics' role have changed since the time of Thompson, we must take up the internet, at once a boon and a daunting challenge to music and to journalism. The boon part is obvious. The web is making classical music more accessible than ever. The French pianist Pierre Laurent Aymar is one of the most formidable and fascinating musicians before the public right now. On March 11th, the day his new Deutsche Grammophon recording of Bach's rigorously complex and severely beautiful Art of the Fugue went on sale, that CD went immediately to the top of the Times classical music, uh, I'm sorry, to the top of the classical musical charts of Billboard and iTunes. 
The iTunes homepage that day featured new recordings by Snoop Dogg, U2, and Pierre Laurent Aymar. Concert presenters have long fretted that young people are simply uninterested in classical music, and what are you going to do? Mr. Imar's success suggests that maybe young people have just not known how to access classical music, but they are finding their own ways to the music online. The challenge for journalism, of course, is that readers, especially young readers, are drifting away from print. The Times' website is the most successful, the most utilized of any major papers, with tens of millions of hits per day. But even putting aside the economics of the web, I worry that if there is no printed times and the paper is just another click on the screen, will its authority seem diminished? Moreover, the very notion of journalistic authority is being challenged. These days, when a network of opera bloggers can chat away online about the Met's new production of Verdi's Macbeth, does it matter what I think? The Times has been adapting creatively and in the opinion, opinion of many, excitingly. For example, last month I went to Paris to cover new productions of operas by Berg, Dalla Piccola, and Mozart at the Paris National Opera, as well as some or- orchestra concerts. I wrote several long reviews and an arts and leisure follow-up that ran last Sunday. While there, I also wrote a daily blog, my Paris journal, that ran on, only online with links to my reviews. The idea was to complement the coverage in the paper with informal additional commentary, side stories, interviews, tales of travel, and anything that strikes me as interesting. In my journal, I wrote about retracing the walk that Virgil Thompson took from his apartment on Quai Voltaire to the place where Gertrude Stein lived with Alice B. Toklas. I wrote about going down into the bowels of the old Palais Garnier Opera House, where I looked through a grate in the sub-sub basement down into the building's famous underground lake, hoping to catch a glimpse of the Phantom of the Opera, who legend has it lives there, you know, and more. The biggest online adventure for me, though, was a video I made last fall. I was writing an arts and leisure piece about the continuing impact of 12-tone technique on music today. My editor said, great idea, but you'll have to explain, of course, what 12-tone music is. I offered to go one better. I had our very able video crew come to my apartment where I sat at the piano and did an eight-minute lecture demonstration about the evolution of 12-tone music. At one point, I compared, for example, a Bach musette to a 12-tone Schoenberg musette, explaining that except for the way the pitches were picked, the two pieces were uncannily similar. Judging by the hits it got, my my, uh, video was incredibly successful. So I planned to do more. We are going through a a momentous transition, not just in journalism and education, but in all the ways that information, intellectual content, and artistic expression uh, are communicated. It's thrilling, it's scary, it's an unknown. Things were simpler in Virgil Thompson's day. Just trying to enliven the art form, support worthy artists, push his agenda, and promote himself was plenty. (laughs) And he certainly promoted himself. Let me end with a charming anecdote anecdote to make this point. In 1954, Thompson announced that he was going to give up his job as chief critic at the Herald Tribune. Replacing him was not going to be easy, and the editors asked for his input. One of Thompson's valued freelance critics was the composer Peggy Glanville Hicks. She wanted the job badly, so one day she made her pitch to Virgil. She spoke of her deep experience in music, her wide-ranging curiosity. 
She said that appointing a woman to the post would be a bold move for the paper. Then she added, half kidding, that being the Herald Tribune's chief critic would also be a boon to her career as a composer. Virgil Grindon said, baby, I've sucked that lemon dry. <laughs> Thank you. I have a, um, I want to take questions, but I, if we have time, it's a quarter of, can we play this? Let me just give a little intro. Since I talk so much about Virgil, um, I thought I'd play, hi, George. I thought I'd play um, just a little bit from this, one of the recordings I made of his music. Uh, one thing I, love about uh, Virgil was as a composer was trying to do something very difficult he was trying to write simply in a radical way he was trying to write simple use simple materials in a way that made it seem shocking fresh uh, now when when it doesn't work it doesn't sound radically simple it just sounds simple uh, when it works there's nothing like it and there's also something so direct in his music and his love of and, and Gertrude Stein brought out the best in him um, there was something about taking her crazy words and setting them with utter clarity and uh, directness and, and almost affection, you know, to make them all vivid as if it meant something, you know, th that, uh, that, that just, th the two of them was shot. Now, this little tiny song, Susie Asato, um, is was from 1925, and I'd like, I want, it's just a minute and 40 seconds. I'd like anybody here to tell me another piece from the 20s that's more radical in its way than this piece. But let me just tell you, t t uh, read a little of the text to you. To, um, uh, sweet, 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 sweet tea, Susie Asato. Sweet, 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 sweet tea, Susie Asato. Susie Asato, which is a told tray shore. A lean on the shoe, this means slips, slips hers. When the ancient light gray is clean, it is yellow. It is a silver cellar. This is a please, this is a please. These are the seds to jelly. These are the wets, these say the sets to leave a crown to inky. Inky is short for incubus. Uh, and so on. it goes on, not much more, but now you can say there's gibberish, there's just crazy. I think it's gorgeous. I think it's beautiful. I think it's about something. Susie Asato, I mean, it's a kind of portrait of this woman, Susie Asato, and who, according to this, was a hostess who had teas. And you would go to her house where you had Susie's sweet, 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 sweet tea. Susie was also a sweetie. Sweetie, you know, uh, she was a sweetheart, in other words. Um, uh, Susie Asada, which is a told tray sure. So tray sure. In other words, you can count on Susie Asado's tray if you when you go there that you're going to have wonderfully sweet tea. And it's told, it's fabled. You know, we, we, everybody talks about tea at Susie Asado's. But tray jour is also a play on, it's, she's also a treasure. Um, uh, and then, you know, words like this. Um, when the ancient light gray is clean, clean, it is yellow. It is a silver cellar. It's gorgeous. Gorgeous. Anyway, listen to what Thompson does to it. Uh, this, is my, this is my performance with my friend Nancy Armstrong, soprano. Ah, oh, it started already. Why is it so soft? Oops, we had a little. T In Silicon Valley, we're having a surprisingly lar large number of technical problems. Yeah. Can we start again? Yeah. Uh -uh. Okay. Begins just with the soprano. 
Okay. All I right. Mean, again, I make my I make my point again. To me, in in its way, what is more radical than that piece? It still sounds incredible, shocking almost, but and wonderful. But anyway, that's our version. Questions? Thank you very much. We have. We have time for a few questions, and the room here is a bit hard to hear sometimes, so if you can raise your hands, we will pass mics around and uh, get the questions that way. So, all right, I see hands. You mentioned iTunes. I wanted to ask you about it. It seems to me the classical selections on iTunes are anemic, that there's just nothing there. There's snippets of little things, not whole pieces, et cetera. Could you have any influence in getting them to have a more robust, <laughs> et cetera? And then I, I, would that help... A yeah, bigger generation I, find classical yes, music. Yes, you're asking the wrong guy about all this stuff because I, you know, I'm really a little out of the loop, which is why I have a couple of younger freelancers on my staff to sort of, you know, uh, get me off the hook on these things. iTunes, yes, uh, I, 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 but you know, all like Universal Classics has its own site now. I mean, all the record companies are are just getting on board and they're doing their own stuff, and it's amazing, you know, uh, what, what you can find. And uh, so I think. In, um, iTunes, you, you know, they sort of think uh, the sort of whole point of iTunes is who needs the record companies. But the record companies have learned that lesson, and now they're they're just jumping on board. I think if you go, just look, for example, at Universal Classics, you won't believe what's on there. You know, what what you can, what you can have. I had always thought I had predicted in columns years ago that I thought. The idea of downloading all this music, I wasn't sure going to happen. With are you going to sit there and download De Meister Singer? But um, I thought that what would happen is burning things to order. Uh, when uh, American com the Amer uh, Composer Recording Inc. you know label, which was this amazing label, went under, uh, New World Records took it over, and they promised to make every r recording and that 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 amazing catalog of composers CRI Composer Recordings Inc. available on a per burn. Basis, and I wrote a big column saying this is the future. Well, now that's now ancient history. I mean, they've they've gone way be beyond it, and people are downloading things, and the, it's just happening a whole lot faster than anybody imagined. But I don't know where it's going, but boy, it's going there, and it's going fast. Uh, um, but yeah, iTunes can be anemic. It's true. Uh, I agree with you in terms of its classical. But uh, you know, it's amazing when you um, when I'm doing like a oh, I don't know to bring an obit or something of someone you can't believe what you can find on YouTube you know of in classical music uh, it's incredible just incredible um, anyway it's not my expertise yes um, you said that uh, young artists should try and do something newsworthy right. something new did you mean to imply that you would equate that with Something new being something good, is that necessarily well? Good? That's one. If that's the case, is that a more of a Western value that you're always looking for something new? Well, I don't. I mean, this is a very big topic and a big question. But what we isn't one of the things that we love about new art in all fields is that nobody has told us yet whether it's good or bad. You know that we can make up our own minds, and that's what's exciting about it. Um, you know, if you uh, there's a if there's a wonderful collection by Nicholas Slominski uh, uh, called, um, I'm blanking, you know, uh, 
lexicon of musical invective, yeah, his lexicon, where it, which is filled with reviews of the great master, you know, put downs, you know, uh, negative reviews of all the great masterworks of our time, and. Uh, and the thing is, when I've, I love reviewing new pieces in contemporary music, and if I, you know, I tried to be playful with the Tandung Concerto, and you know, it's a, it's a fine thing, and it's fun and everything, and there's skill in it, but you know, I had no reason to get angry or you know, dump, dump on it. But if someday it is hailed as the great work you know, of, of the first quarter of the 21st century, fine. You know, like, that's fine by me. I just had fun writing about it because it's new and uh, you know, I don't really, I mean, for, try writing about even a good performance of the Eroica Symphony. I mean, what can you say except we all know it, we all love it, it happened again. You know, but, uh, but with, with, it, with a new piece, you know, it's like I'm the first one. You know, I, I, I get the first crack at it. And, uh, and it's so much, the writing is so much more vivid. Now, with the, the question you specifically asked about young people, if a young artist, especially from, let's say, from another country, comes and says, here's something I believe in, I'm already so predisposed toward that artist. I think, yes, bring, and in a way, it's so far beyond whether I even like it. That artist likes it. And I'm curious to know why that pianist is so involved in this piece. This young Finn, a few years ago, played this what I can't remember the name of this 20-minute Esa Pekka Solomon piece that is, I've never heard anything so hard in my life. It's astounding. Uh, it's crazy, really. But boy, he really played it. And Solomon told me that you know, he came, he was shy, he looks like he's so mousy and skinny, this kid. And, uh, but it was really great. And you know, it was beyond my preferences, that, that performance. The, and and I, I was so impressed that this kid would come to New York and play that piece as a major work on his recital. That, you know, it, as I said in my talk, it takes all the pressure off his performances of the standard repertoire. Um, so yes, I do. And in fact, I go further when I talk to students at Juilliard or something. It, I, you know, I, if you want me to, I'll tell them, if you want me to be honest, and you're a pianist and you have a program that's all old stuff, I'm immediately prejudiced against you. You know, I think a young person? You know, like, they should be ahead of me, you know, at this, you know. And, and also, we can't cover everything. And if, if it, you put yourself in my position, I'm choosing between one piano recital at Merkin Hall and one piano recital at uh, Carnegie Recital Hall, both young, highly touted artists. One has a, some really interesting, a new piece, maybe something unusual on the program. The other is standard repertoire. What would you pick? I mean, there, it's just, if I, I'm more a newspaper, I'm, if I can only cover one, I'm going to go to the concert with the new stuff on it. And maybe I will have ma missed a magnificent performance of Chopin's B minor sonata. Uh, but you know, there, ha th there have been those. They've been around for a while. That's, you know, so, and there will be more. And it was not to say that they're not glorious and wonderful, but they're hard to write about. So yeah, I mean, irregardless of, it, it's important for artists to play music they believe in. You know, uh, they, someone like Murray Pariah, who's a magnificent pianist, um, his, it's an incredible abrogation of his responsibility to the art form that he plays no new music whatsoever. And Frank, I love his playing, but frankly, I even in his playing, sometimes there's a little touch of something precious that I think would not be there if he did play, if he worked with composers. But he doesn't have to become Peter Serkin. He doesn't have to become a champion. If he picked one composer, one living composer that, whom he believed in, that composer's reputation would be made overnight, you know, to have such a powerful advocate, you know, and, and he doesn't do it, and I hold that against him. But he plays 
It's a new Bach recording. It's beautiful. What can you say? It's beautiful. Yes, yeah. Yeah, it is. Yeah. Question in the back there. Oh. Uh, yeah, I'm wondering if uh, how much you buy into this sort of um, notion of antipathy between popular music and classical music, and whether you think that some of the recent um, ways that orchestras have been trying to bridge the gap, I'm thinking of um, you know, the, the harpist Joanna Newsom right. performing and Christopher O'Reilly's recordings of Radiohead. Right. Like, do, you, do you think that that's an interesting way to sort of approach that problem, or is it sort of deeper than that? Yeah, I, why not? It's, you know, years ago, the Times started putting pop and classical music on the pages together, and we all love each other, and every, it's all you know, wonderful, and, and that's the way it should be. And I have absolutely no problem with any of those experiments, and why not? In a way, earlier generations of American composers did the same thing with other kinds of popular, uh, popular music. I do, uh, I'm cautious about it, though, when it seems gimmicky. If you think that just by you know, injecting some, uh, bringing some rock guitarist on stage and, uh, and putting him in your symphony is going to make it all of a sudden instantaneously hip. If it's not a good symphony, I, I don't, that I don't buy. But for any you know, serious attempt at where people really think that there's something that, that you know, uh, from a pop music or you know, a rock or something that, that will speak to this other tradition and that, why not? Sure. Um, but I, I do think it's easy to, uh, easy to be glib and uh, superficial with that stuff. But um, if you read my friend Alex Ross, the critic from The New Yorker, his book, The Rest of His Noise, is really wonderful. But um, if there's a theme to the book, it's not a huge theme, but I think the theme is, um, it's a fantastic book, but uh, is that everybody thinks of today as being a time when all these different things are happening at the same time in music. But he says, no, the whole 20th century was like that. I mean, the entire century. And he, he really makes a very good case for that. And uh, sure, why not? You know, uh, um, but look, uh, if you look for, to Ives as a model, I mean, look at, uh, it's uh, miraculous. I mean, uh, that's what I mean about seriousness of attitude. That All that that hymn tone, Americana stuff, that Ives loved that music, which doesn't mean that he doesn't have fun with it or poke fun at it, but he loved it. He took it intensely seriously. Um, so it wasn't some glib sort of just throwing it into, you know, uh, which, which can be the problem. But otherwise, why not? I think we have time for one more question. Did I have one in the front? Hi. Um, I was just wondering, um, do you have a different approach as a critic when you listen to um, classical music as opposed to modern music, when there's no melody that you can cling to that you recognize? How is the experience difference, different when you criticize the music? Well, the no melody thing is a big, um, th that's a big, big topic. And that, that would, that's, uh, it's not, I wouldn't really, uh, I mean, it's, it's different kind of melody. I mean, different kind of, um, but, it's, I don't know, music is music, you know, the same, um, if you, still online, if you look at my um, video of, about 12-tone music, I think my comparison of the Bach and the Schoenberg is so telling, because when I've done that for people, they can't believe that they start hearing, all, you know, all these um, dance rhythms in the Schoenberg, and it really doesn't matter anymore that the pitches are going all over the place, and uh, um, so I, I think you're still dealing with the elements of, um, of, you know, of music. And my gosh, I think there's such 
misunderstanding about the, the repertoire. The Brahms symphonies are very strange pieces. Are, you know, it's the, but, it's, but we forget that because we know them so well. It's not that, you know, it's not that they're, they're, they're really out there. Uh, but we just we have them memorized, you know. And Esa, both Esa Pekasan and, and Michael Tilson Thomas told me the same thing in separate interviews that the hardest thing they do is um, uh, a performance of the Arogus Symphony or the Pathetique Symphony because it's very hard to do those piece, pieces in a way that makes them sound like the crazy modern pieces they were and still are in a way without resorting to some gimmicky interpretation, which you don't want to do. You want to be faithful to the style. So the only way you can do that is by context. If you have an all Russian program and you play a new Russian work and maybe Shostakovich and then the, or Stravinsky or something, and then the, uh, then the Tchaikovsky, you're gonna hear it differently. You'll hear it in this other context. Um, but I, I think uh, if I were reviewing such a program, I would review, I would approach all of them the same way. Um, I, I, I guess maybe that's it's sort of ecumenical of me maybe, but it's also just seems musical that you just try to deal with all music as if they're not some, you know, they're alien species from each other, but yeah. Just a reminder that further questions can be asked at the discussion session tomorrow afternoon here at the Humanities Center at 4 p.m. There are some recent reviews of Mr. Tomasini in the uh, foyer there for you to get before that. And please join me now in thanking Anthony Tomasini. Thank you.